You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. The following presentation is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. This is Pulp Puri Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Adapted from the best pulp in the world, welcome to Pulp Puri Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Tonight, The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Good evening. This is Ellie Maitland of Chicago's Wild Claw Theater. Pete has asked me to introduce tonight's episode. We travel tonight to a nameless Italian city in an unspecified year. Well, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Scholars of tonight's author, Edgar Allan Poe, believe that our story is set in the 17th century. Yes, friends, by the way, we're finally getting around to Poe, for who can deny that he was a Pulp Fiction hack and a pretty successful one? Our tale, The Cask of Amontillado was first published in the November 1846 issue of Godey's Ladies' Book magazine, which, at the time of this story's publication, was one of the most popular periodicals in America. Poe was 37 at the time of publication. He would be dead nearly three years later. And now, here's Lisa, our announcer, to tell us a little bit more about the story. If you're a wine connoisseur, You already know, but if you are not, and if you've been asking yourself, just what the heck is Amontillado? I'm happy to inform you that it is a dry Spanish sherry. Our storyteller is Montrezor, an Italian nobleman recently fallen on hard times, but who still travels in the highest circles. Listen now to The Cask of Amontillado. The thousand injuries of Fortunado I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a mere threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But do not doubt I understood that my plan must be free of all risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when penalty befalls the redresser. It is equally unredressed when the wrongdoer does not realize just who is being avenged. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont to smile in his face. Ah, 
And he did not perceive that the reason for my smile was the thought of his eventual destruction. Fortunato, I'll tell you now, did suffer from a particular personal frailty. Although in other regards, he was a man to be respected and even feared. His weakness was in the way he considered himself a connoisseur of wine. In contemporary art and in the study of gems, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. It was to this weakness, then, that I formulated my scheme. I encountered my friend Fortunato one evening about dusk during the supreme madness of the carnival season. <laughs> Montresor, my good fellow, I am ecstatic to see you. Where have you been keeping yourself, my fine fellow? How are you enjoying the carnival, eh? I've been to better ones in the past. <laughs> He greeted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. He had on a tight-fitting striped costume of many colors, and atop his head was a jester's cap with bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never stop wringing his hand. My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. I have received a sizable shipment of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. Amontillado? <laughs> How much? A rather large cask. A pipe. A pipe? How? Impossible. <coughs> and in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts. And I was foolish enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell you. Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from common sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vault. <coughs> Come. Oh, my friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese. I have no engagement. <coughs> Come. My friend, no, it's... It is not so much the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado! <coughs> you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Amontillado from... from Madeira. <laughs> Give me your arm. <coughs> there.
Welcome to my home, my dear Fortunato. What's become of your servants, Montrezor? Are we to fend for ourselves? Yes, apparently so. My apologies. They appear to have absconded to make merry at the carnival. I can't believe they disobey me. This very morning I ordered them not to stir from the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But no matter. Here is a torch for you. Huh? And one for me. Follow me to the vaults, my friend, but be cautious on this winding staircase. The gait of my friend was unsteady. The bells upon his cap jingled as he descended. We came at length to the foot of the stairs and stood together on the damp ground in the catacombs of the Montezumas. <coughs> the Amontillado. Where is it? It is farther on. Fortunato, will you observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls? <coughs> Niter. Niter? I fear that it affects you. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. <coughs> it is nothing. <coughs> Come, we will go back. Your health is precious. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchese. Enough! <laughs> the, the, the cough is a mere nothing. You will not kill me. It's... I shall not die of a cough. True. True. But indeed, you should use all proper caution. A draft of this Merok will help defend us from the damps. Drink? <laughs> I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I drink to your long life. <clears throat> Give me your arm. These vaults are extensive. The Montresors were a great and numerous family. Yes. I forget your coat of arms. A huge human foot in gold in a blue field. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lecesit. No one insults me with impunity. <laughs> Good! <laughs> the wine sparkled in Fortunato's eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Medoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, intermingled with casks and puncheons of wine, into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. See? The nitre increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. 
Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. <laughs> it, it, it is nothing. Let us go on. But first, another draught of the Medoc. <laughs> Fortunato emptied the bottle in a breath, then laughed and threw it upwards with a strange hand motion I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise, and he repeated the movement. You do not comprehend? Not I. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. The... You are not of the Masons. <coughs> yes, yes. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason? A sign. Give me a sign. It is this. You jest. A trowel? <coughs> Very amusing. A masonry trowel. <laughs> but let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so. Fortunato took my proffered arm and leaned upon it heavily. After many more minutes of travel, passing through a series of low arches, past more piles of bones and descending deeper into the crypt, we came to a spot where the foulness of the air caused our torches rather to glow than to flame. Pray, proceed. Just a few more steps and you shall find the Amontillado. As for Lucese... He is an ignoramus. Ha! The Amontillado. <coughs> what is this? I have reached the end of the passage, Montresor. I... Uh, I, I was uh, fast upon my friend's uh, heels, uh, and in a moment I had fettered him to the granite floor. In its surface were two iron staples about two feet apart, to which were attached some links of chain and a padlock. These I passed about his waist in a matter of seconds. He was much too astounded to resist. Montrezor? What? <coughs> what? <coughs> Pass your hand over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitro. Indeed, it is very damp. Fortunato, once more let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But first allow me to render you all the little attentions in my power. But, 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 but the Amontillado. True, the Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among a pile of bones and uncovered a quantity of bricks and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of the trowel I had carried with me, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance to the niche. Uh, oh! Oh! Fortunato! That was not the cry of a drunken man. Your intoxication is wearing off sooner than I expected. Well, do you have anything more to say to me? No? Then I shall continue with my labors.
Fortunato, my friend, I have finished the fourth tier of bricks. I am enjoying the clanking of your chain so much that I shall pause in my efforts so that I might hear it better. is at a level with my breast. Let me put the torch over it and take a look at you. Ah, there you are. Are you feeling fit, Fortunato? Two can play at that game, my old friend. It was now midnight and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, ninth, and tenth tiers. There but remained a single stone of the eleventh tier to be fitted and mortared in. I had barely begun to insert the final brick in place when out from the niche came a low laugh. It made the hairs on my head stand up. There followed a sad voice which was difficult to recognize as that of the noble Fortunato. <laughs> yes, yes, a very, a very good joke indeed. An excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it at the Palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will they not be awaiting us at the Palazzo, the Lady Fortunato, and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, let us be gone. Uh, for the love of God, my treasure! Yes, for the love of God. Fortunato! Fortunato? There was no answer. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall to the floor within. There came forth in reply only the quiet ring of the bells on Fortunato's peaked cap. I suddenly felt ill from the dampness of the catacombs and hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones and returned to the world above. Fifty years have gone by since that night. A half century. 
and no mortal has disturbed those bones. A toast to Fortunato. In pace requiescat. And so ends the Casca de Monteado. While this story was believed to have been set in the 17th century, it is interesting to note that in Poe's time, the 19th century, there was a universal fear of being buried alive. Coffins of that time might have featured above-ground bells attached to the corpse, which could be rung to alert the living that the body below wasn't quite dead. Don't go away. Our play for tonight, The Cask of Amontillado, was shorter than our usual fare, and our director did not want you to go away feeling less than fulfilled. So we're bringing you a little more from that master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. And now, let's hear from his poetic side. Here is the first of two eerie poems, Annabelle Lee. It was many, and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived, whom you may know, by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden, she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child, in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that, long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me, to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me, Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of a cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of my beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in the sepulchre, there by the sea, in her tomb, by the sounding sea. Our final selection tonight is Poe's most famous poem, The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore. While I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. 
Only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness, peering long, I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore? This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven. Ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before, on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. 
caught from some unhappy master, who unmerciful disaster followed fast, and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door, then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim, whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from my memories of Lenore, quaff, or oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by the heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, Still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted. Nevermore. That was The Cask of Amontillado, followed by two poems by Edgar Allan Poe, the ninth episode in our fourth and final season of Pulpery Theatre. Featured in the cast were, in order of appearance, Jason D. Johnson as Montrezor and Pete Lutz as Fortunato. Annabelle Lee was recited by Jackie Ayers and The Raven by Pete Lutz. Music for these poems was specially composed and performed by Tom Rory Parsons. Your announcers were Lisa Ayala and Gareth Seven. Tonight's story, The Cask of Amontillado, first appeared in the November 1846 issue of Godey's Ladies' Book magazine. It was adapted by Pete Lutz, who was also our director and producer. The poems were presented in their entirety and without alteration. And now, here's Pete to tell you about our season finale. 
Before I do that, Lisa, I want to pay huge thanks to our special guest, Ellie Maitland, who gave us the introduction to tonight's episode. Ellie is a Foley artist in residence at the Wild Claw Theater in Chicago, and we're excited to announce that she'll be joining the cast of our new series, The Cellar. Big thanks also go out to Mr. Gareth Severn, who gave us some last-minute voice work in our closing announcements. Next time on Pulpery Theater, it's our Season 4 and Series finale. We travel to an ethnic neighborhood in Chicago where we'll meet a detective named Sinkowitz. Sink, as his fellow cops call him, is a guy with one foot in modern times and the other in the traditions of his Polish-American upbringing. We'll hear how these two factions clash in The Bird and the Snake. That's next time on Pulpery Theater, and until then, this is Pete Lutz, asking you to call me if your situation improves and to keep your ears clean. Music for this episode was sourced from 16th and 17th century Italy. Sound effects were sourced from the public domain and from freesound.org. The Pulpery Theater theme was composed and performed by Sir Richard Wentworth. Opening announcements by Gene Lutz and Rich Wentworth. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulpuri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio production. Sixty-three audio. The traffic. The boss. The baby. The baboon. That does it. Eighty, take me away. Lose your cares in the luxury of a warm audio drama. AD softens the calluses on your soul, leaving you feeling silky smooth as it lifts your spirits. The soft, luxurious, and fragrantly sonic world of audio drama. It's like no other aural experience. Audio drama. I love it. Pamper your soul with an audio drama. Nurture yourself in narrative. AD. Now with dynamic panning crystals. Available on the Mutual Audio Network.
or wherever oral narratives are sold. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.